there is a practice of reading scripture together, which can be called liturgy or litany. They mean slightly different things, but that doesn't matter for my purposes. I'd like to invite you to read the Bible with me. And I mean read it with me, not listen as I read it to you. So you will need a Bible for a moment. Well, you'll not need it for a moment. You'll need it for longer than a moment. But for my purposes now, I'd like you to read Psalm 136 with me. But we're going to read it as it was intended to be read. And it was intended to be read this way. The leader of the gathering in which this psalm would have been recited would say the first part of each of the 26 verses. And the congregants would respond with their phrases. Can you put this on the screen? Or no, okay. (laughs) That was a very definitive answer. Thank you so much. So, the bit that you need to read, have you all got access to a Bible? Can you all see one? Yes? You can turn it on, you can open it, you can do whatever as long as you can see it, Psalm 136. The bit that you need to say is, for his steadfast love endures forever. Okay? So every time you see that in the text, that's your job. I'll help you though. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who, by understanding, made the heavens. For his steadfast love endures forever. Who spread out the earth on the waters. For his steadfast love endures forever. Who made the great lights. For his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day. For his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night. For his steadfast love endures forever. Who struck Egypt through their firstborn. For his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them. For his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. For his steadfast love endures forever. Who divided the Red Sea in two. For his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it. For his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. For his steadfast love endures forever who led his people through the wilderness for his steadfast love endures forever who struck down great kings for his steadfast love endures forever and killed famous kings for his steadfast love endures forever Sion king of the Amorites for his steadfast love endures forever and Og king of Bashan For his steadfast love endures forever and gave their land as a heritage. For his steadfast love endures forever, a heritage to his servant Israel. For his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state. For his steadfast love endures forever and rescued us from our foes. For his steadfast love endures forever who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. 
The first half of that psalm is easy to read and respond to. It gets harder. Because you're confronted with a God who overthrows kings, who lets people drown. Kings that are named Og and Sion. Not fate, not coincidence. God claims responsibility for removing them because they were getting in the way of his plan and they were attacking his people. The Psalms are like that. They can be really difficult to read. We have this poetic notion that they're full of comfort they are and hope they are, but they're also full of vengeance and anger and uncertainty. Which of you has not read one of the Psalms when one of the writers says, and cast down those that afflict me and afflict them with the very things that they're saying to me and do this and do that and you read it and perhaps because we're conditioned not to say anything, we kind of take a sharp intake of breath and say very little about it. But actually, these are the words of raw emotion. These are the words of the human spirit trying to articulate trust in God Confusion with God, anger at God, disappointment with God, praise and thanksgiving of God. They are raw, they are honest, they are powerful, and they are beautiful. And the most famous of them all says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me by still waters. He restores my soul. And he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even when I pass through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Your rod and staff Comfort me. And you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And you anoint my head with oil. And my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In the very middle of that psalm, there's a phrase that has brought comfort and strength and hope and reassurance to billions of people. Even When I pass through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. The connection between that and Psalm 136, in fact, the secret of making your way through any valley, facing any storm, this little repetitive phrase that you have just used again and again and again. His stead, for he is good. And his steadfast love endures forever. It is possible to flourish in the valley of sorrow. in the valley of darkness, in the valley of despair. It's possible to lose everything and still flourish. But it's dependent on understanding that God is good and that his love endures forever. My dad dropped dead and August 2002. And the bottom fell out of my world. 
in 2014, my beautiful nephew, Jonathan, who was 25, hanged himself. 20 weeks later, his dad, my brother-in-law, Robert, brokenhearted and unable to cope with the sorrow, hanged himself. My sister-in-law, broken by the loss of her grandson, a different part of the family, same my side still, my brother's wife, one July afternoon, walked into the garden, doused herself in petrol, and set herself on fire. A year after that, her husband, my brother, brokenhearted, had drunk himself to death. And sitting in one of our other brother's living rooms, collapsed. His liver exploded and he bled to death. Six months after that, my mum choked to death. And eight weeks ago, my second brother, diagnosed with cancer just eight weeks before, died in my arms. And God is still good. How have I worked that out? It's been the most painful journey that I have ever made. And I have stood on the edge of the abyss of despair and thought, I am not going to make it through another day. I have beat my fists on walls and windows and church floors in anger and frustration and confusion at what has happened in my life. And I still believe that God is good and his love endures forever. My faith is simpler than it has ever been. Everything I believe about God is seen in Jesus Christ. And I am convinced that he is good. And that his love endures forever. I love him more than I have ever loved him. And I need him more than I have ever needed him. And I understand him less than I have ever understood him. And my faith has become simpler than it has ever been. And I believe that God is good. And his love endures forever. Valleys are difficult places. They're dark and mysterious and threatening and lonely. You can feel isolated and uncertain. But that's only one part of the story of the ideas of valleys within scripture and our lives. Valleys are also places of encounter, of mystery, of possibility. Darkness is not entirely negative. The world began in darkness. It did not begin in light. Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void and darkness covered it. Then God said. So often we have an understanding of death or despair or loss or sadness that is shaped by our churches, and I don't mean your church, I mean our churches, weak theology of sorrow and of loss and of struggle. Because by and large, our answer to it, particularly to those who believe and trust in Jesus Christ is, well, one day God will make everything okay, so just hang on till then. That is comforting. It does bring strength. The Bible says that when we believe that there is life after death, we sorrow not as others who are without hope. But it isn't sufficient. We need something that can help us understand what God is doing in those dark moments of our lives. We need something to hold on to when everything else is gone. And I want to share with you for a few moments some of the lessons that I have learned about valleys and how God can meet us in them. And I recognize that tonight your valley may be worry, your valley may be doubt, it may be exhaustion or depression or despair. It may be a valley caused by hard choices. It may be a valley of death, a mourning. It may be a valley of failures, a valley where you have to face your demons or face your uncertainties or face your past or face your fears. Whatever it is, I pray that God will meet you in it tonight. But can I give you a declaration of honesty? I'm not okay. I am a broken person being mended day by day by the grace of God. My faith is not complete. It's still growing. I still struggle. I don't have all the answers. But I've learned that God doesn't want to explain our valleys. He wants to walk through them with us. He doesn't want to explain your suffering. He won't give you a three-point reason. Oh, there are plenty of preachers that will. There are plenty of would-be theologians that could write a really good book on this. And they're good. But they're not sufficient. Because God doesn't explain our suffering. He enters it. And he says, let me walk through this with you. During the Second World War, a young German officer was taken prisoner of war here in the United Kingdom. He became a Christian. His name was Jürgen Maltmann. And he began to reflect on his part in Nazi Germany. And he's still trying to work it out. And then a book called The Crucified God, he talked about his journey through trying to understand suffering. And he tells the story that a young Jewish boy once tried to escape from a concentration camp, but didn't quite manage it. And in his desperation killed a German officer as a punishment, the camp commandant decided that 10 inmates would be killed and forced the rest of the camp to walk past them. They were hanged. The problem was that one of them was too thin, too emaciated to die instantly 
So the whole camp was forced to walk past a 10-year-old boy who died slowly. One of the people in the line was a man called Ellie Weissel. And someone behind him, Weissel was a Jew, leaned forward and said, where's your God now? Weissel turned and said, there, my God has died. And stopped being an observant Jew from that moment on. Because he couldn't live with the idea that the God that was present with all things, in all moments, could be present there and not do something. I understand that. Some years later, after his conversion, Jürgen Moltmann returned to that incident and visited it again. And he said, actually, by the way, Elie Weissel wrote a book called Das Nacht as a result of his experiences, or The Night. But Jürgen Moltmann, reflecting on that incident, said, Weissel was right. God was present on the gallows with the 10-year-old boy, feeling his pain, going through the agony of his death. That wasn't the moment where God said, I have gone. It was the moment where God said, I am here. In the very midst of the darkest moment, I am present. One of the first lessons that I want to try to help you to understand is that a sense of absence does not mean that God is not there. Some years after my dad had died and then all of the recent events, I was sitting looking outside my window in my study and I saw two robins come and bounce onto the patio and look in the window. God has this thing with birds and me, but that's another story. A big robin and a little robin. And as I watched, I realized that actually God was trying to get my attention. I felt the whisper of the Spirit saying, I want you to revisit the moments of your loss. But do so knowing that I was there, even if I was silent. It is the hardest thing that God has ever asked me to do. Because to live through the trauma of loss is difficult. To live through it again is even harder. But as I began to remember and think about some of the things that I had gone through, I realized that the glaring absence of God was actually punctuated with small moments of his presence that I had missed. One day, in that time, I had driven along the A40 between Oxford and Burford. It's the most stunning road. And as you drive, never, never eat shredded wheat. As you drive east, if you're driving back toward London, out on your right-hand side, if you get there at just the right moment, you see the sunrise. And it illuminates the Oxford countryside, and it's beautiful. I remember driving that road during these moments, and God reminded me of that drive, and I hadn't experienced it at the time. But I realized that actually my whole life had become one that revolved around me. I had made idols of my family, of my children, 
Honestly, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, if you had said to me before these things had happened and this in, intensive journey, what was most important in my heart, I'd have immediately said God, but he wasn't. My wife was, my children were, because I couldn't have lived without them. And I realized that actually grief was exposing something in me that I wasn't even willing to face myself. And it was the fact that God was not first for me. My family were. And I remembered that Oxford sunset and realized that I would normally call that a sunrise, wouldn't you? Except it's not the sun rising, is it? It's the earth moving around the sun. And just as we fall into the language of describing the sun rising and the sun setting, the sun doesn't rise and the sun doesn't set. It's the earth that moves. <laughs> so we must be careful that we do not build our lives around our perspective with God as our sunrise and our sunset. Our lives revolve around him. His life does not revolve around us. And that embarked me on a journey of undoing. As I realized that I had to put that right. This dark and mysterious valley that I was walking through actually became a valley of encounter as I realized that God wanted to reorder me. And as he reordered me, I discovered that I loved my wife more that I loved my children more, that I loved my family more, yet God was somehow drawing me into a closer relationship with me, with him through that darkness. The phrase, when I pass through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me, is a Hebrew phrase, tsalmavet. It's extremely hard to translate. It only appears a few times in the Bible. One of them is in Job chapter 16, verse 16. And if anyone can talk about valleys, it's Job. But he translates it, he says, or it's translated in our English Bibles this way. Deep sadness rests upon my eyelids. And my eyes are red with weeping. The very same valley that you must walk through becomes the valley that you think will break you. But God is there even if he is silent. Don't ever think that a sense of the absence of God means that you've displeased him. Please don't allow yourself to believe the lie that you've lost someone because they did something wrong or you did. Don't allow the Pentecostal obsession with everybody getting healed, this side of heaven, to rob you from the reality that we all die. And remember that God is present. Something profoundly helped me to understand the dual nature of these valleys. Reflect with me for a moment on the last moments of the Lord Jesus Christ's life on earth as he died. In Matthew chapter 27 and verse 45, we read something really important. Turn to it with me. From noon on, darkness came over the whole land 
until three in the afternoon. And about three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice. Eli, Eli, Lemma Sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But please now turn to Luke chapter 23 that describes these same moments. Verse 44. Bear with me, I've given you... No, I have given you the right verse. I'm looking at the wrong chapter of my Bible. Verse 44. It was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Same time, see? Same time. While the sun's light failed. Is there ever being a more powerful few words in this moment? The second person of the Trinity is on the cross. He upholds everything by his powerful word. Jesus Christ is dying and the whole creation is on the brink of extinction. The one who holds everything in place is dying. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. How can those two things be true? How can it be that Matthew hears Jesus Christ saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Luke hears Jesus Christ at the same time saying, into your hands I commend my spirit. But it's clear, don't you see? Therein lies the difficulty of a faith that misses the darkness. I realized as I read those words, that is me. At one and the same time, sometimes in the same breath, as I've walked through the darkest valleys, I have said, God, where are you? With my exhalation and with my inhalation, I've said, do not abandon me because I can't get through this without you. And there is no contradiction. The idea that faith never doubts, faith never questions, faith never breaks its heart, faith never weeps, faith never... Um, asks questions that cannot be answered. Faith never struggles. Faith never reels against God. Faith never cries out. It's simply not true. And the idea that faith must never do that is not only untrue, it is dangerous and harmful and vindictive and wicked. Faith can with one voice say, Why have you forsaken me? And into your hands I commend my spirit. And in the darkest valleys of my life, I have found myself kneeling at the foot of the cross and saying, who else can I go to? You alone have the words of eternal life. And at the same time saying, I am all out of anything 
Don't you see that what Maltman said was right? Where was the Holy Spirit when Jesus died? We know the Father was in heaven. We know the Son was on the cross. Where was the Holy Spirit? There's only one verse that gives us any clue whatsoever of what is happening in that moment. It's from the book of Hebrews. And it's a rather tenuous link that says that while the Son was dying, he offered up a sacrifice to God through the eternal Spirit. I'll tell you where the Holy Spirit was, and of course Hebrews helps us understand it. And this is a complex idea until you get it, and then it's a profoundly simple idea. God the Son was being offered, Jesus Christ. God the Father was being broken by the sacrifice of his Son, yet recognizing that his wrath was being sated in that moment. He wasn't absent. The idea that the Father is absent when the Son dies. Absence in that sense is not what's happening at the cross. He was, his wrath was being poured out. His judgment was being satisfied. His plan was being accomplished. And the cry of abandonment that the Son utters is the cry made by the power of the Holy Spirit. God himself becomes God forsaken. God identifies on the cross with every person who has ever lost anyone. He identifies with every sorrow and every heartbreak and every pain and every unanswered question and every longing. He inhabits the cry of the Son, where are you? But he also inhabits the cry of the Son, into your hand I commend my spirit. And there is our hope. As you walk through the valley, it's only, it is in remembering that you are not on your own. God is present. God sees. God knows. God understands that will get you through it. It's in remembering that in that valley, the small dots of light you see are only possible because there is a great light shining somewhere. At the beginning of the Gospel of John, we're told this, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it, cannot understand it, cannot destroy it, cannot hide it, cannot deconstruct it, cannot move it. But on resurrection morning in John chapter 20, we, are, we read these words, early in the morning on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary came to the tomb. How can it be dark, John, if the light shines in the darkness and the darkness will never overcome it? Because in John chapter 20, you are reading the words of a new creation story. Any Jewish listener, reader would understand early in the morning on the first day of the week, that sounds like early on the morning on the first day of the week. This is a new creation. And as Mary comes to the tomb, everything is dark. Everything is despairing. Christ is gone. Hope is crushed. Friendship is destroyed. Everything has gone wrong. And Jesus, who rises from the dead, meets her as the sun rises. And when he speaks to her, everything changes. The world began in a garden in Genesis chapter 1. The world will end when all sorrow is consumed and all despair is destroyed and death is no more and loss is no more and sickness is no more and separation is no more and the world becomes a garden city and it all bursts into life in a garden in Jerusalem three days after Jesus Christ dies and is resurrected. And he appears to Mary as a gardener. This was the moment when darkness was broken forever. This is the moment when light breaks out of the darkest night. This is the moment when the valley becomes a place 
where we encounter God in ways that we cannot ever understand. This is the moment of new creation. But our problem is we have been brought into the new creation as followers of Jesus Christ. We live with the light of God within us and around us. But we walk through a valley and a world and a life where that darkness is still present and is still consuming. So the enemy of your heart, the enemy of your soul, the enemy of all that is good and holy and right and hopeful will whisper into your heart or your son's heart or your friend's heart that darkness gets the last word, that death gets the last word, that despair gets the last word, that heartbreak gets the last word. Listen to me, and this is not just platitudes. It's a lie, it's a lie, it's a lie. And instead, we somehow have to work out how we live in those moments of darkness with hope in our heart without allowing the hope to become facile or the darkness to become irrelevant. It's not irrelevant. In Luke chapter, in John chapter 11, when Lazarus dies, Mary and Martha, his sisters, break their hearts. Why didn't Jesus Christ turn to those two women and say, Give me half an hour, it'll be fine. Why didn't he say, no need to cry? If he knew that he was going to resurrect their brother and let them go through that for no reason, that's cruel and I would stop serving him. For the same reason that he sometimes says to me, you're going to have to break your heart, son. You're going to have to feel as if your whole life is falling apart. Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus and breaks his heart. But he knows he's going to bring him back. What's going on? It all lies in the conversation that he has with Mary and Martha, particularly with Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. And he who believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And the response from the sister is, yes, we know that there will be a resurrection. Jesus isn't asking about her formal theology. He's asking, do you believe that I am stronger than death? Do you believe that death gets the last word or I get the last word? This is the moment when Jesus uses one of the great I am sayings in the Gospel of John. He's not just doing that for Mary. He's not doing that for Martha. He's doing that for you. He's doing that for me. In that moment, Jesus is proving that he has the power to transform the darkest moments. The deepest sorrow can be reformed and redeemed by the grace of God. The profoundest heartbreak. The people you're trying to help through valleys don't need your answers. They need your presence. They just need you to sit with them until they're ready to talk. Why did Jesus cry, therefore? I think. That he knew he needed to show the world who gets the last word in this ultimate darkness. Of course, he would resurrect, be resurrected himself. But I guess the accusation could always be, but he was God. So the only way to prove that he has power over death in you or those that you love is to bring somebody back who's died without explanation. Knowing the pain that that will cause, knowing the delay, the pain that was caused by his delay in getting to Lazarus, knowing the confusion that's generated when he doesn't say yes to the prayer, knowing the heartbreak that is opened up when he seems to be not listening and not interested and not attentive. It's almost as if he wants you to know how much he loved Lazarus because in the beginning of the story, we hear that even though he loved Lazarus, he did not go. Even though he loved your loved one, he let them die. 
Even though he loved my loved ones, he let them die. The loss of a loved one is never proof of God's disfavor. It's never proof that he doesn't love us. It's never a reason for rejecting him. What we see in that valley is this, as Jesus weeps at the tomb, listen to what he prays. Father, I know that you've heard me, but so that these people might know that you have heard me, I say, and he shouts, Lazarus, come forth. In that moment, he is asking his dearest friend, Lazarus, and his dearest friend's sisters, Mary and Martha, three of the closest people to him on earth, to go through the deepest and darkest valley so that his glory can be seen and the world can find hope. And in the valley of my despair and my loss and my sadness and my heartbreak, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I have realized that God weeps with me as I go through it. And he says, Malcolm, I know how hard this is. I know how many questions you have. I know how profoundly close you will come to losing everything. But I need the world to know that the death and despair doesn't get the last word. And the only way I can do that is by asking you to walk through it for me and with me. And suddenly, the loss that you feel is changed. In that moment, by the way, in my prayer life, in case you think I'm some kind of perfect saint, my retort to God is, that's not fair. Give me the option. Let me decide to say no to that. Because if I had to go through it again, I wouldn't choose it. I wouldn't say, let my family be the ones that go through this. But who would? Which of us would step up to the mark and say, yeah, let my family go through it. But in our world, people go through darkness and despair. And God asks some of his people to go through it too. Not because he's displeased with them, but because he needs them to be his hands and feet into the darkest and most profoundly difficult moments of the world's history and life. One last thought. In the old chorus books, <laughs> there used to be a wonderful song that said, he's the lily of the valley. We used to sing another song called, Sweet Rose of Sharon, blooming for me. Jesus, that is the emblem of me. Fairest of all flowers that grow, sweet rose of Sharon, blooming for me. The lily of the valley is one of the most beautiful flowers in the world that releases the most powerful scent. And it only grows in valleys. I think I have learned to look into the eyes of someone who has been in that valley. And there's an understanding of our need of God for every breath that you'll never find anywhere else. To walk through a valley with God is one of the most challenging things that you will be ever asked to do. But it's also a place where you will discover some of the most profound truths of grace and hope and mercy. And when a church walks through it with someone, you must learn to weep together. To bring your unanswered questions together. The people that you're trying to help don't need fixed. They don't need healed. They just need loved. You just need to be present with them. Let God do what God needs to do.
Let's pray. In the jumbled journey of our lives, when we can't make sense of it, thank you that you're there. And whether we come to you tonight beating your chest in anger or we fall at your feet exhausted, thank you that you're there. Some of us would give almost everything for one last conversation. But we can't And we can't fix this. But thank you that all unfinished conversations can be finished in Christ. That all disappointments can be laid at your feet. That all of the uncertainty can tumble out before you like a scrabble board of letters and emotions and words that make no sense to us. And thank you that you take it. Tonight, we cannot necessarily give you our certainty, but we give you our pain, our disappointment our isolation, our confusion, and our loneliness. And we pray that somehow the world will see Christ in us through it. And let the eternal hope rise in us, not as some kind of blind or banal panacea, but as a foundation that can never be broken. A reality that cannot be shaken. Where faith is needed here in this space, give it. Where courage is needed, give it, Lord, please. Where strength is needed, give it. Where comfort is needed, Release it. In Jesus' name.